Much of France's African empire fell away during decolonization, but 15 nations still use the CFA franc, thereby remaining under its control. France has historically devalued the CFA franc to buy cheaper goods at the expense of the 183 million Africans in the CFA zone. In this episode, recorded at the 2023 South by Southwest Conference, guests discuss their battle against monetary colonialism and how Bitcoin can play a role in helping to change the tide. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. So it's an honor to discuss uh, this topic today with two very different people from two very different industries who share a common view that the CIFA system is exploitative and that, that it needs to be changed. And that currently, no one really has an incentive to do so from a governmental level. Um, Frida, as you heard in the story, uh, obviously is coming at this from a human rights and a democracy point of view. Uh, and Maget is coming at this more from an entrepreneurial innovator's point of view. So we already heard a little bit more about Farida, so we'll start with uh, Maget, but I would just like you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about, um, you know, why, why you grew fed up, I guess, with the, with the CIFA system as someone with roots from Senegal and, and why it makes business and, and commerce difficult and why it basically uh, throttles, uh, you know, let's say economic growth in that region. Right. Thank you to everyone for being here. Uh, always a pleasure being here with you guys as well. My name is Magat Wade. I'm originally from Senegal, uh, still on the same west coast of Africa as Farida is, Togo. Um, for me, as an entrepreneur, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, but my biggest goal um, beyond being an entrepreneur is to basically see African people, especially black Africans, become recognized uh, global co-creators in innovation and prosperity. That's just period, full stop, what I want to see. And if one, if one talks about that, one has to then think about entrepreneurship and its role in prosperity building. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, this is where this system that you just heard explained, you then all of a sudden start to understand how it can be stifling to people like me trying to do business on the continent. Um, who here, if you have to send uh, $1,000 know, in payment to someone, or receive $1,000 in payment from someone. Who here has to reach out um, to your bank, who is then going to reach out to the central bank to, say, to get approval for that money to actually, if it gets to your bank, be, um, be uh, accepted? Who here has to go through that process? No one. No one. I have to go through that nonsense every single time I have to do an operation, a transaction that's worth $1,000. And the more the money uh, threshold goes up, and the more of the stupid regulations do I have to go through. So imagine how hard it is already for me to do business. If on top of that, you're adding all of these crappy, you know, worthless, um, time-consuming steps to my life, which, by the way, make me have to hire special team members, which means higher cost of doing business. So you can start to put all of this together and we end up in a very uh, make-no-sense place. And so I won't bore you with all the details. I'm sure we're going to go through more of these uh, as we have this conversation. But I just wanted to leave you with that. Um, and then maybe another one, too. Um, you know, the fact that um, 
um, in order to, how many times do I go to the ATM machine in my country? And the machine says it gives me my $300 that I was trying to get out, of course, in France CFA, and the money doesn't come out of that thing. How many times? And no one, to this day, I'm still chasing after at least $1,500 worth of various type of, uh, you know, ATM uh, uh, withdrawals, but I never saw the color of the money off, and I can't get the banks to turn it back, back over to me. Um, just a few examples like that. We, like I said, we'll go more in details with, with, you know, some of this stuff. Yeah, and it's important to note that the problems you're encountering, these hurdles, they're not bureaucratic, you know, oh, you know, we could do better. They're intentional rent-seeking exploitative things that are put in place so someone can take a cut out of that, whether it be the government of Senegal and all of its bureaucrats or the French, you know. One or the other is taking a cut instead of you just being able to seamlessly do commerce and interact, which is what Americans can do across state lines. Um, so, you know, Frida, in the, in the film, you gave a very short description of a vision and of a problem, and that is that there's, uh, you know, more than 50 different countries on the continent of Africa and almost 50 different currencies, and how just difficult and how divisive that is. So um, before we get to, like, potential solutions and, and what people are working on moving forward, uh, maybe you could just give us a little bit more of the history of this system, um, how it keeps people divided, uh, both in the CIFA system and all across Africa. Um, and yeah, a little bit more about the history. I mean, obviously, you know, we tried to pack what we could in the video, but your perspective is just like obviously very, very rich. So we'd love to hear a little more on that. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me. And it's good to see you all here today. Um, there's one interesting fact. We have 54 countries in Africa, 46 currencies, and the CFA zone that you just heard about is actually the only currency that rallies numerous countries. And when you look at it um, um, from that perspective, you will think that this is a good thing to have 15 countries using the same currency. It should make it easy for business and everything. But Unfortunately for us, um, that currency was created specifically to siphon wealth from our countries. Um, I will give you a very simple example to break it down for you. The CFA currency requires our nations to pay fees to the French governments whenever we need to do business outside of our countries or our zone um, to what they call guarantee the convertibility of our currency. And it's a huge amount, it's 15%. So for every amount of money that we are taking out of the country and in the country, in terms of trade, the French government gets a cut of 15%. Now this is in 14 different different countries, 180 million people, exporting a massive amount of natural resources. Um, and the French government just has been making money like that for free for, for so long. But beyond that, there is a more um, cynical aspect to it. Of course, people wouldn't willingly want their governments to be controlled by a foreign power, especially after spending years fighting for independence and losing thousands of people in the process. But in order to keep that process from going on and to assure that the French government continued to profit massively from our economies, they had to support tyrants and sponsor them to take power. In the case of my country, Togo, like you have seen, our first president, Olympio, he was killed exactly a month after the parliament of Togo passed the bill to announce the creation 
of our own currency. And when he was killed by soldiers of the colonial uh, army, those soldiers were sponsored by the governments of France to lead Togo, and they have been ruling Togo ever since. The unfortunate part of this is that for us, the citizens of these countries, it means absolutely no political freedom. The same family has been in power for 56 years. My country is ruled by the oldest military regime in Africa, and many other countries in the system have known similar fate. They have been ruled by the same government for 30, 40, 50 years, just like Togo. It means in those countries we have absolutely no right, no freedom of speech, no freedom of association, no freedom of the press, and activists like myself are either killed, jailed, or in exile. I'm lucky to be alive, so it means that I'm in exile. Um, that's the only option uh, uh, outside of being in jail or being dead. Um, in addition to that, you have an extremely corrupt system that builds up because when the same people hold power for so many years and there's absolutely no system of checks and balances and no ability to hold them accountable, they embezzle state funds. And the, the, the way it works is very simple. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. They help the government of France achieve certain objectives financially. And in turn, the government of France not only provide them with weapons and resources to continue repressing us, but completely bypasses the crimes that they commit in their countries. Interestingly, none of those dictators, despite the heavy record of human rights abuses that's, that they have, um, none of them have ever faced any challenges, either in local, regional, or international courts. They always obtain the diplomatic support from the French government and continue to benefit massively from a complete anonymity outside of the African region. Because I'm sure for most of you, it's the first time that you're even hearing about such an appalling story. Because there is a specific plan to, to disguise it and to not allow the world to know about it. But beyond that, you see the, 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 the worst component of this is that our currency uh, um, doesn't allow us to earn a decent living. People, the incomes are very low, because for, for, for you to have one CFA, for one dollar is uh, amounts to 60 um, and 50 uh, uh, um, CFA, and that money can be devaluated at any time by the French government, and this happened twice in our history. We wake up one morning and we are told that your money lost 50% of its value. No explanation whatsoever, no accountability whatsoever. Now imagine waking up tomorrow and being told that your dollars, if you have $1,000 in your savings, is now worth $500. Um, and if you have loans or debts, you have to pay twice the amount that you initially owned. And there is no result for you. You can't vote out those politicians. You can speak against it because if you do, you'll find yourself killed um, and many more. So it's a system that is a multi-layered exploitative one that has been maintaining millions of people in shackles for decades. Um, I want to work through a couple concepts that we didn't get to cover in the video, and then you, you all can just interrupt me whenever you want to kind of interject. Just a couple things that are on my mind. Something that's important to note is that the French actually voted uh, to, to move from the franc to the euro. This was a highly contested election. Some of you remember, I think it was basically like 50 point whatever percent to 49 point whatever percent. The point being the French people got to, got to vote on the fate of their currency. Uh, obviously, the citizens of the CIFA nations never got such a vote. They never got to determine whether or not they should be pegged to the euro or not. That was a decision made for them. So this isn't necessarily something that is like old history or old news or, you know, whatever it happened in the 40s or 50s or 60s. I mean, you know, these are, these are uh, situations and implications that people are still living with today. A couple other factors. Uh, there has been some reform, uh, and there's, there's two main kind of, uh, let's say, central banks in Africa that, that still kind of uphold uh, the majority of the, of the CIFA activity. 
um, one is in in Dakar, um, and and the other one is in um, it's in, it's in Cameroon, right? In Cameroon, correct. So Senegal and Cameroon have these like local banks, and the French have been forced to over the years try to make it look like they're delegating more power locally. Um, but at one point, 100% of all the reserves of all of the CIFA countries uh, lived in Paris. So what that means is like, if you were an Ivorian coffee producer, um, you know, when that money came in to pay for your goods, the savings, the surplus, went to Paris. And, and then what happened was France got this capital for free um, that they got to play with, earn interest with, earn yield with. Um, and then whenever Ivory Coast would want to borrow, um, they would they would charge extortionate rates. So this is like the system that just kept kept going for so many years. It was eventually reformed down to be 75% of the reserves. Some of the countries still have to have to keep 50%. So the Central African ones are a little more behind. There's a little more reform going on in the West African countries. But again, as you saw, most of this stuff is still in a very colonial arrangement. There's another element to this that I found shocking, which is called first right of refusal. So it's not necessarily written down anywhere in a, in a constitution or something like that. But when, let's say, you're a Togolese um, uh, municipality and you want to build a port, uh, you have to go to France first and make them an offer at below market, uh, rather at above market prices. So you, you, you have to like basically say, we'll pay you more than what we could pay an American firm. Um, and, then, and then only if they refuse can you go then and try to get some other, like the Chinese or the Americans or whatever, to, to build it. The other thing is with exports. You have to sell your exports for below market prices to France first. And if they refuse, then you can sell them somewhere else. So this first right of refusal thing is something that the French you know, government has used for decades to basically, you know, milk these resources, which are really valuable, right? Yeah, I wanted to add to what you said. Um, um, before we got our independence, the French government came with uh, a whole list called Le Pacte Colonial, which means the colonial pact. And those were conditions that we have to abide by before we were granted independence. Um, um, among those conditions, you have the first right of refusal for French companies. They get the first say for any product we want to sell, including our natural resources. And these countries are immensely rich. Niger, for example, has the largest deposit of uranium in, the, uh, uh, um, in Africa and powers the entire French re uh, electricity Yeah, grid. we're always celebrating. We love nuclear energy up here. We want energy <laughs> yeah. sovereignty for the global south. Yeah. But you have to realize that the French government has subsidized its nuclear grid, and yeah. good for them for being 70% nuclear, but it's all basically been like stolen and looted from, from, from these poor uranium. countries in Africa. Yes. That's where they get the uranium from. Yes. Mali has one of the largest deposits of gold. Um, um, Togo has the second largest deposit of phosphate. Um, um, Congo, Chad, um, Gabon are massive oil producers, Senegal as well. So technically, you have all these countries that have massive amounts of wealth and natural resources, which are entirely produced, controlled by the French government. And one of the former presidents of uh, Congo uh, uh, mentioned in an interview that for the entire time he was president of Congo, he has never received an exact data on how much oil the French government was drilling from Congo. They drill as much as they want and they pay them what they want for it. And you don't want that, then you're removed either by coup or they send you rebels, uh, mercenary groups to attack you and take you out of power. Um, in addition to the first right of refusal that is part of the colonial pact, we are also required to purchase weapons from the French government. France is one of the biggest producers of weapons in the world. Um, the markets for the, the French weapons are francophone countries. Um, and unfortunately, those weapons are used in mass, committing massive atrocities, uh, uh, um, 
powering conflicts among countries, uh, um, committing war crimes, and the French government is never held accountable for any, any of those. And finally, the French government actually calculated every single dime is spent on colonizing us. So they say that, you know, when we came, we built roads that we used to export whatever goods that we had to steal from you. We built a few hospitals to keep you alive just good enough so you can work for us for free. We built a few schools so that you can at least speak some fluent French to help us get around, but you have to pay for it. So they build every single country um, to pay back those resources. Um, there was only one country that refused, which was Guinea. And because they refused, the French government destroyed every single infrastructure before leaving, uh, including uh, um, uh, telephone lines. They destroyed everything. Yeah, it's something called Operation you can look it up. It's, it's shocking. Um, it's detailed in a book uh, called Africa's Last Colonial Currency, which is a fantastic resource if you want to learn more about the SIFA. But basically, like when um, Torre like, said, I'm not going to be part of this, uh, the French were quite vengeful. They like destroyed all kinds of infrastructure. And then they used money printers to hyperinflate the currency. They, like, they smuggled in fake you know, you know, Ghanaian currency uh, to destroy the economy. So these people aren't messing around. Um, one other topic I wanted to just mention, and then I want to ask uh, Maget a question, is uh, just the double loan, just to revisit this, how important this is. And this is a much bigger topic than just the CIFA countries. This is all across the developing world. But, you know, we think of these loans from, you know, former colonial powers as helpful. Oh, they're like giving money to their, you know, former countries to help them develop. But again, when you think about it, you know, let's say France gives Ivory Coast 100 million euros. Ivory Coast pays that back right away by hiring French companies to do all the work. So that money basically stays in the, in the pocket of, of, of like the French system, uh, virtually all of it. And then that those countries' taxpayers have to pay back principal plus interest. So basically, like France gets paid back two and a half times. So by the end of it, they may have they may have given out 100 million um, and taken back 250 million. So they've profited 150 million on something that we consider development. So that's just something to let that sit with you for a second. That's happening all around the world and is, is pretty disturbing. Um, for for, for Maget, I, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, one, one issue is that people say, well, all these countries should just have their own sovereign currency, right? Um, the problem, though, is that maybe these leaders would not be so responsible with the currency. Maybe they would abuse it. So I'm sure you've thought of this before. If you're your own country, you know what? What you know? Again, before we get to potential activist solutions, like wh why have you been skeptical of like, um, uh, let's say, national currency independence for each CIFA country? Well, look at what, for example, Zimbabwe has been doing. I mean, one of the jokes in, Zim in Zimbabwe is the way people greet each other in the morning is, "What's the rate today?" Because you know. It's been, they're playing with that currency so much that at this point, it's a joke. I'm sure you guys heard about having to drag a wheelbarrow full of bills in order to pay your, your bread, right? And so I have absolutely no reason. I have to say that it's when Bitcoin came around that I finally, for the first time, started to even entertain the idea that maybe it would be time for us to, to, to finally let, leave it behind. Because my whole life I've been obviously very much in favor to this day of uh, what we call um, monetary independence, right? I mean, for me, you have to have monetary sovereignty, full stop. But where I was not really eager to keep moving was, okay, we get rid of this, what you've heard here, but what do we replace it with? 
a money, in this case a fiat currency that these leaders would get to just play with, you know the first thing they're going to do is go to the printing machine. You know, recently they were complaining, my country, I mean, every show that I watch, and this is what's so funny, it's not just the leader who think that way, it's also, I feel, almost like the people, because they were on TV complaining about, oh well, it's not fair, because France got to use a printing machine when they needed um, help, like France has been going for during the COVID, you know, and how to finance their, their companies when they put everybody, they shut everybody down. Uh, France, you know, the, um, the Minister of Finance had this, um, this policy of quacky uh, Quoi qu'il en coûte is whatever it, it costs. So what they were doing is printing, 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 and that's how they're financing all of us. Uh, so our people halfway across the world are looking at it, and they're not, I'm not hearing them think the way that Florida would think or Alex would think, because I, do, I don't think you guys are for the printing machine. But no, they're looking at it and be like, well, we should have a right to do the same thing. So, of course, I know that they probably would be using the printing machine. So, for me, when things started to finally um, um, carry hope was when something like Bitcoin came around. Because I'm like, this, this is going to solve the problems. Because it's going to obviously lead us to financial, um, to uh, monetary independence in the fact that this is nodes and math that no one can corrupt, Bitcoin is. And on top of that, we're going to have this concept of sound money. So not only have this concept of uh, uh, functioning financial institutions uh, together with uh, sound money, Bitcoin would be one of our solutions for that. So One thing I would note is that um, you look at other countries in the region um, who have their own currencies. And we should make two things clear. One, like you would most almost certainly want to live in one of those countries rather than a CIFA country because they've had more economic growth because they haven't been so repressed. Um, but they have their own issues. If you look at Nigeria and Ghana, which are like the economic powers of the region, um, you have like crazy inflation in both of these countries. In fact, Ghana, really tragically, because Ghana, you know, is one of the most, until recently at least, one of the most free countries in Africa, uh, very hopeful democracy. Its currency was devalued by 75% last year. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of factors for that, but th these are the risks that people see when they think, okay, well, we're just going to have our own currency. In Nigeria, they've had chronic double-digit inflation for as long as young Nigerians can remember. So friends of mine who are in their 20s or 30s there, um, their entire life they've just watched the price of things like Nike shoes and uh, chicken and rice just continue to go up at a, at a rate that would make Americans choke, basically. Um, I mean, they have 20 to 30% food inflation. I mean, we, we, we rightfully get spooked by 10%. I mean, imagine something two, three, four times that. Um, so, so this is the risk that, you know, let's say independent monetary policy um, carries. And it's, I think what's interesting is there was, you know, Frida, I'd like to hear a little more about uh, this aspect of it from you because when I first met you, uh, I didn't know that you were so interested in money and monetary freedom. Uh, I knew that you were a democracy advocate. And then we were, I can't remember how it was, how it came about, but I kind of got intrigued by something and I ended up asking you about this. And you said to me, Alex, like uh, the, the democracy movement in my country has always been about monetary freedom. And that's something that I just, you know, we don't hear about in the human rights movement very much. So maybe you could kind of go into that a little bit. Thank you, Alex. Um, uh I wanted to say something um, first before answering your question about what Magat said, which is a, a great point. Um, one of the biggest fears for activists like myself about having governments that can print money at will is not being able to hold them accountable. And for countries where um, 
no matter who you vote for, the same president is still going to be declared a winner by 97% or by 100%, because in my country, even dead people vote. Um, you, you are afraid of what they can do if they have a full control of the monetary system, because they, they, they can't be voted out. Um, they stay in power with weapons, and, and they kill at, at will. So it's scary to, to leave the future of your country in the hands of people who are not only um, able to be held accountable, but can be very cruel. Um, um, when the question that you asked about maybe the tie between the democracy struggle and, and financial freedom, um, you know, th there is a story that I like telling. It's about th that of my grandfather, my father's father, who before my father was an activist and my father became an activist himself. Um, he was before he joined the independence struggle, he was arrested by the French government for refusing to pay taxes. Um, and that was during the colonial era. And the taxes were as much as 80% of the revenues of the farmers. Uh, and it, after, when you farm, you literally have to give up to 80% of your yield to the French government as taxes, and they could no longer feed their children uh, on that basis. So uh, my grandfather and other people from his community decided that if that was the case, they would no longer farm. They would just hunt and eat animals. Um, and they stopped farming altogether. And to punish them, they got arrested. And when he was arrested, one teacher from the community uh, uh, protested against it. And, and, and reach out to the independent struggle leaders uh, in town, because my grandfather was illiterate and he was in the village, and told them about these people who are being tortured because they refuse to pay taxes. And eventually, these people advocated for them and they were released. And when they were released, they were informed that if we get our independence, they wouldn't have to pay that kind of taxes to the French government anymore. And that's how my grandfather joined the independent struggle in my country. And in that process, he got arrested over a dozen times. He was always in and out of jail, and he kind of enjoyed it as well, because he felt like he was doing something really good. Um, but um, that carried on for many years, uh, because for a lot of the Togolese uh, citizens, the struggle has, has started with wanting from, to break from um, on the colonial uh, system. In 1931, uh, right after the Great Depression, the French government massively increased taxes in all its colonies. Um, and Togolese uh, uh, um, people sent a petition to them saying that they were not willing to pay more taxes because they were already paying a lot. Um, those, the, the two petitioners they sent to the French administration got arrested. And Togolese market women who sell food and products in the market, when they heard about it, they, they marched to the prison. They, they completely chased away the prison guards and they freed all the prisoners. And that was the first revolution in my country, and it was on January uh, uh, 28, 1931. A few days later, the French government sent the deployment of soldiers from other colonies to come and massacre these women. Many were raped and killed. But right from the beginning, our struggle has always been about financial independence. And if the French government imposed the Nyasingbe dynasty on us in Togo, is to be able to continue milking us financially. And that is something that we really understand. And more recently, your, your father um, had his banking you know, restricted um, due to his views, activism, what have you, had his life restricted. Um, and now today, you've been, you've been talking about how the regime continues to do this, continues to target people economically. Now, of course, we at the Human Rights Foundation see this 
all the time in every dictatorship, whether it's Putin's Russia, uh, Xi Jinping's China, whether it be in Hong Kong, whether it be in Belarus, whether it be in Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, I could go on and on and on. But one of the first things that a regime does to a civil society organization to disable it um, is to close its bank account or is to freeze its funds or to prevent it from like getting funds from abroad or to declare getting funds from abroad a terrorist defense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this was obviously done by uh, a lot of the regimes in the Sifa region, especially in Togo. And, and this is really disabling. Like if you can't pay uh, the workers, the translators, the coordinators, the people working on your movement, um, it does really disable it. So this, this was like a huge, huge pain point. So maybe Farida, you could talk a little bit about how you started to see this Bitcoin thing start to emerge as something that could actually be useful as opposed to just this speculative asset? Um, when I started using Bitcoin, it was uh, initially completely out of accident because we needed solutions in a situation where we, uh, uh, um, my movement was one of the leading democracy movements in my country. In 2017, we started protesting massively against the regime. At some point, we had one million people in the streets, the biggest number in our history. For a country of eight million, it was a lot. And the regime unleashed all sorts of persecution, freezing bank accounts of democracy movements, um, arresting activists. So we still needed to get money in to support the struggle. But we couldn't do that through the banking system or through Western Union because people were being arrested for that. Uh, we still have political prisoners today who are arrested because they donated as little as the equivalent of $20 to the movement because the government goes down and tracks everybody who contributed financially to our struggle. So how do we raise money in a more private way uh, to ensure that the identities of those who are giving us the funds in the diaspora uh, and supporting the movement are not uh, uh, exposed. So Bitcoin became a solution for that. Uh, um, um, beyond that, you know, when you mentioned that my, my father recently couldn't access his bank account, that's not the case. My, my father hasn't had a bank account since 1977. Uh, it's been 30 years because he's officially a terrorist in my country for being a democracy activist. And this is the reality of the majority of democracy activists in the country. They are completely debanked. They can't even open bank account. Uh, and it's pointless anyway because if you open it, they are going, they are going to collect your money. So unless you want to work for them for free for the rest of your life, there's no point having one anyway. But it's very difficult for activists to have bank accounts in that country. The government has full control of the monetary system and even the remittance services. You go, you can only go and withdraw your money. Uh, when somebody sends you money from abroad, you can only withdraw it from the bank. Uh, um, and when you get to the bank, they ask you not only for documentation, but a lot of invasive questions, such as uh, you have to fill a form about who sent you the money, what's the purpose of the money, what's the address of the sender. And this information helped the dictatorship actually collect data and track who is sending what and who is doing what with the money. Yeah. So um, you decided to do a conference in Ghana uh, a few months ago, in December, that Magat and I both got to attend in Accra. Uh, Jack Dorsey was there. Many innovators from across the continent and the world were there. And what was noticeable was that this was a conference done by activists, by democracy advocates, not by like industry people or people trying to like sell you some sort of, you know, crypto scam or whatever. This this was organized by people with, who had political uh, goals here. Um, and what I thought was interesting is that there were so many people from outside of Togo there. So I met people from Somalia, from Somaliland, from DRC, from Congo, 
from Cameroon, from so many places that are war-torn or considered, you know, places you would never want to travel to. And these were like people using Bitcoin in these places, thriving actually. I met a guy from Somalia. He is running a business there with remittances and he has 30,000 clients. A lot of them are refugees who live in Kenya. When you escape from Somalia, which is one of the world's largest uh, sources of refugees, and you go to Kenya, you don't have a bank. You can't use your ID to like do any sort of banking. But you can use your Somali ID to like KYC with like his system. So basically they receive money from abroad um, through Bitcoin and this guy helps uh, like off-ramp that to the local currency. So this is what you're seeing here. And, you know, I met so many Nigerians. I think there's more Bitcoin developers in, in Lagos than in San Francisco. I'm not joking. I just met so many people working on this. So many young, brilliant people working on this. And one of the reasons why is, is something that you, um, it's a different kind of, uh, let's say, uh, problem that then you face, which is called the, the sort of, you know, uh, two exchange rates, right? So other countries like Cuba encounter this as well. But basically, there's like a, an official rate and a real rate of exchange. This is really, really important because basically, let's say the, the official rate of exchange in Nigeria is 450 naira per dollar, okay? So if you use Western Union or something like that, you're going to get 450 naira per dollar. But the street rate is 750, so basically the government's stealing like 40% of your value anytime you use the normal legacy financial system to send money back home, whether it's a remittance, you know, et cetera. Now that's on top of the fees. So the, according to the UN, the average $200 remittance to sub-Saharan Africa has a fee of 8%. So you're paying 8% plus you're paying the 40% that the government's stealing from you. When people are using Bitcoin, they, don't, they get the entire amount of money. So they get the full 750 Naira. So this is what, one of the reasons you're seeing an explosion of people using this is because it's just a vastly superior way to send money from A to B. And so many people in the United States just like don't understand this. So I thought it was so amazing to learn from this. I also thought it was so amazing to learn that 80% of inter-African transactions go through an American or European company. That is, again, a colonial structure that still exists, which is completely ridiculous. Like, you just have, again, rent-seeking on payment rails. This whole payment system that they've described, that they've lived through, and that is still imposed on people, was not designed to connect and help people. It was designed to divide and rent-seek off people. So that's why there's so much kind of, like, anger and emotion uh, among a lot of people in West Africa, Central Africa, because the system is not designed to help them. It's designed to, to take from them. So we get to the conference, and there's just like, and all these people working on this project. Um, what, what is your kind of, what, what would you tell the crowd today about, like, Bitcoin adoption in, in West Africa and Central Africa? And, and what are your, what do you, where do you think it's going in the future? We'll, we'll go to Frida first, and then, and then Maget. Um, the good news is that Africans are not waiting for permission to adopt Bitcoin. We actually have the fastest adoption rate in the world, uh, which is which is impressive. And in the past two years, that um, um, that rate has almost tripled. The reason why. Africans are adopting Bitcoin tend to be far different from the reason why people are adopting it in the West. In the West, the, the goal is more speculative, you know, kind of like the lottery. When it goes high, you make some money. Um, but back home, people um, cannot even access money. Um, we live in countries where over 70% of our populations are unbanked. These people don't have bank accounts and they can easily open one, but they still need to be part of the financial system because they generate income and they need to make expenses. In addition to that, we live in countries where uh, um, the national currencies depreciate uh, um, in, in, in many countries at, a, at a, an explosive rate. People talk about the, 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 the volatility of, of Bitcoin, but they don't realize is that we have some national currencies in Africa that are like 10 times more volatile than Bitcoin. You wake up in the morning 
and it's at ten percent, and then before you go to bed, it's at ninety percent. Well, also, <laughs> Bitcoin um, over time has been going kind of like this, right. where these currencies aren't going up; they're they, only going they keep down. Go, going yeah, down, they forever. never go back up. Exactly, uh, for sure. Um, so people have lost complete trust uh, in many countries in their national currencies, and the other alternatives for them to be able to save money is usually purchase is to purchase a, 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 a property. But purchasing property requires a huge amount, and not not everybody has enough savings to purchase uh, land. And in addition to that, we have a lot of land litigation issues with the the fact that there is no real uh, system uh, of, of verification. So the same land is sold to 20 people, and then they fight each other in court for 20 years. Um, so Bitcoin has been giving people an alternative to be able to put money aside without worrying about their government's money uh, losing its value consistently. So for us, for the conference, what we wanted to do is to bring together the activists that are fighting for political freedom, um, to understand the correlation between the financial freedom and the political freedom, to bring together the African developers that can start building solutions and payments reels that we can use at the national level so that we stop being just consumers of international monetary systems, and also bring together entrepreneurs who need solutions like this one for their business to try. Yeah, um, Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z created a fund called the B-Trust, which is giving out tens of millions of dollars. Uh, it just started to, uh, to help infrastructure for Bitcoin in the global south and Africa. And what they said was that if this is going to be a money for the world, it's got to be built by people around the world. So what they're trying to do is, is bring on more developers who can make the tools that, that, that Africans need. You know, people in America, you know, generally speaking, have no idea what they need. So the kind of innovators that I met there were doing stuff that like, blew my mind completely. A young man from South Africa that we met has designed a way for you to use Bitcoin without the internet completely. So he uses something called the USSD protocol, which is something that many, many millions of Africans use all the time, uh, using SMS. You basically text a phone number on any you know, feature, feature phone. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a QR, doesn't have a, you can't do copy-paste. A basic, basic feature phone. You text uh, a particular phone number, and it pops up with a menu, and you can access your Bitcoin this way with no internet. It's just like blew my mind completely. And he's uh, scaling this out you know, to so many, so many people. Um, and then I met another uh, group that's working in Kenya, Malawi, and a bunch of other countries in East Africa to bring on electricity for communities using Bitcoin mining. Like this to me is so fascinating. Like they basically go in with micro hydro and there's like a river running through a village and they, they just divert some of the water with a fish guard and a tube and they put it back in the river. In the middle, they just drop one of these little micro hydro spinners and it powers a Bitcoin miner, and it also gives electricity to the town at way cheaper rates than they could get elsewhere. And the coolest part is this company's not doing this altruistically. This is not development. They're making money, but they're coming in and everybody's winning. So I think like mining with renewable energy in East Africa is like one of the most fascinating things that, that I think is happening right now. So maybe uh, we'll get your, your thoughts on the future of this, Maget, and then we'll go to some questions. Sure. No, for sure. Um, when we were talking about, um, yeah, so for all reasons that we just talked about, Bitcoin definitely way forward for us. Um, if it, I think the noise, um, the signal is lost in the West. It's true. When you have Venmo, you have pay PayPal, you have Cash App, you have name it to pay. Uh, you might not understand why any of this matters in the first place. But on us, 
the signal is not lost. Uh, the pain is the signal. So we are seeing something that maybe is too hard for you guys to see because, quite frankly, in the West, we're a little bit too spoiled when it comes to that. Um, so that's number one. And um, beyond just Bitcoin, for me, I also look at the promise of the blockchain uh, technology behind all of it. You know, going back to what Farida was talking about, this issue around the land title registries. You know, you, we don't know who owns what land. That's a big problem. If we don't know who owes what, you know, um, property rights 101, if we don't know who owes what, uh, it becomes hard. So, um, but for me, you know, um, when we go back and we talk about financial freedom, I, I, I hear us talk about financial freedom, financial independence. I think for me it's important. Um, what I mean with those words is in the end, ultimately, we are going to have to be, when we say financial freedom, it means we're going to have to be uh, economically um, viable, you know, period. Meaning we have to make our own money. We have to have prosperous nations. Otherwise, all of this remains. So, yes, um, to me, the ultimate issue behind, you know, Monetary colonialism is it's, it's, it's one aspect of a much bigger problem, which is, you know, French control in general over Francophone Africa. You know, it's at all levels. The monetary is one thing we talk about today, but it goes all the way down to even the legal infrastructure that many of our countries are using, namely in this case, for example, um, you know, um, civil law rather than, for example, common law. So if we're going to talk about prosperity building, we talk entrepreneurship, we know that common law, for example, is better for entrepreneurship than civil law is. But the French left behind that. And uh, we don't talk about that either. So for me, at some point, you know, we have to really bring all of this back down. And so then at that point, what becomes our ultimate solution? You know, while we're fighting it with everything we've got, one of the ultimate solutions I shouldn't say I'll call it ultimate, but one of the solutions that I know some people are working on out there, and that's something we're doing, is uh, this concept of startup cities, where basically with these cities, our plan is to escape all of this crappy, crazy, um, colonialist, you know, um, uh, oversight that's happening to us from various nations. It's not only France, by the way. Uh, so think about in a country, in one of these African Francophone nations, one president saying, I hear everything you're saying, yet... I don't want to have my head chopped off like anybody else who is trying to go against this. What can we do so that we can still move forward um, and still I keep, my, I keep my head on and also I don't have the oligarchs on my back as well. So we're thinking maybe have this piece of land within this country that's going to have its own law and governance and find at least one country that's willing to go for that. We found one such country in West Coast Africa. And then from there, we're hoping that, you know, we create something where by the time the French wake up, it's too late. This might be the beginning of the end of France in Francophone Africa as we know it. It's not going to be easy. But um, all I'm, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I don't want what we're talking about to feel like gloom and doom to you guys. You see, there are solutions. Bitcoin is a big one. Um, there are some other solutions that the one I talked about, if you want to know more about about it is startup cities, some call it uh, charter cities, um, super interesting stuff. So I want to leave us this room because oftentimes from the West, when we talk about our African, you know, African issues, people get discouraged, or even us sometimes we get discouraged, right, Farida? But the truth is, you have no idea the possibilities that lie ahead for this continent. <laughs> it's just period. So get on it with it now and we want to work with everybody. It's not, so everything you heard today, we just want you to know about it so that you can um, pay more attention to the solution. So this is not about doom and gloom. This is about, yes, things do suck, and we've got so much that we can do about this, and there's so much to do. Yeah, and there's also like, don't feel, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I would say don't feel ashamed that you didn't know about this. Uh, most people, most French people, do not know about this. Um, we I, like in the human rights community, no one knows about this. Uh, in the Africanist community, nobody knows about this. In the development economist community, nobody knows about this. This is like a very hidden thing. So the least you know that we can do is be grateful for you to come spend your time, learn about this, and then ask some questions. One thing, and then we'll take a couple questions if folks want to line up there. If you have any, uh, would just be. Um, it's not just about the French, as you're saying. The Russians, the Chinese, uh, there's all kinds of foreign powers jockeying for control in Africa today. And ultimately, they want control over the money. I mean, they want control over currencies. They want, uh, I mean, that's what the Chinese want to build. And um, the other thing you have to n recognize when people want their own currency not, and something that's not related to even the dollar system, you know, when the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates in the United States to fight inflation here, it absolutely devastates the global south, like crushes all these fiat currencies. So I think it is admirable to think about a world where there could be a currency um, that is not directly tied to this, where the Fed, an unelected body of old, mainly white men in, in Virginia, um, that, that, that they, they can't just decide to raise the cost of capital. They're just immediately crushing, you know, so much uh, activity uh, in, in, in places like, like Africa. The, the last thing I'll just say is fighting back is a little, you know, it's a little tug-in-cheek, but it, this is a peaceful protest. I mean, the, one of the cool parts about Bitcoin, whether it works or not, it's peaceful. Like, no one's like drawing a sword, shooting a gun. This is uh, a way to complement, you know, all the other revolutionary work that's going on that's so important, whether it be linguistic or legal or whatever, environmental, whatever else, your labor rights. This is just something to, to sort of complement that. I'll just answer that one quickly uh, in the Nigerian context, because Nigeria is a government that has banned uh, banks from doing business with crypto firms. So they've actually tried to attack this, and they've failed. Actually, Bitcoin adoption has skyrocketed there. What happened is all the apps, the phone apps that people were using, they just changed the mechanism from using a, a bank, centralized banking service to doing peer-to-peer. -peer. So when you're buying Bitcoin now, it looks the same on your app as it did before, uh, but in reality, you're doing a P2P trade with a broker. So the innovators there are so brilliant that they've been able to get around a straight-up government ban. So it's pretty inspiring. It is uh, basically astonishing because these countries not only, uh, when we when we raise rates, do their do their currencies start to collapse, um, but also the debt that they owe uh, is dollar denominated. So it just starts to cripple these countries. These countries are in so much debt that it's impossible for that for them to for, for, to ever pay it back. And in the 80s, in the 90s, when you know these countries would undergo structural adjustment, what were you going to do? How could you hide? You could only hide into the CIFA or something like that. There was nowhere to hide. So today you can put, you can access international markets, whether it be through Bitcoin or through stable coins, which have lots of risks. But I think it's very important that we mention them. People in these countries use, for in, in Nigeria, for example, they use Tether to get access to the U.S. dollar without an ID. Very important. Now they may collapse, and we always try to warn people and. You know, Bitcoin is its own thing and, and won't, doesn't have this kind of counterparty risk thing to it, which is why it's so inspiring. It can never be devalued. It, can, it has a market risk, but it doesn't have counterparty risk. Stablecoins have both. But the, the, the fact that people can access dollars also in places like Nigeria has been amazing to see. So maybe just a quick remark from both of you, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, um, you, you make a very good point. And when you look at the realities of a country like Ghana, Ghana went into complete insolvency in, in November. The government announced that they can longer pay their, their debt. Um, and the solution was to bring the IMF, 
And um, the IMF always comes with structural adjustment programs. And uh, Ghana is going through its 17th structural adjustment program uh, since its independence in 1957. Um, and what that means is that the government is just going to literally cut down uh, 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 um, the few services that are allowing people to keep their head above the, service, uh, the, the surface because they have to reduce government expenditure. And the only way to do that is to cut down on very key, important social services. And for countries that already have very fragile social systems, removing the very little they have is extremely detrimental. Now, for the average citizen, they don't really see the correlation between interest rates increasing all the way in the United States and them losing all their money, um, being unable to buy food, and, 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 and earning a decent life. But then when you show them how Bitcoin cannot be manipulated by a specific federal government somewhere, uh, uh, playing with the numbers, it, it gives them some sense of hope. Um, uh, uh, and to some extent, some of the people who are also adopting Bitcoin on the continent are doing it for uh, um, ideological reasons. It feels to them like if they are resisting the system to some extent, hoping that it's going to make our countries less do, uh, um, dependent on foreign currencies. Yeah, and we'll get a comment from you, but the structural adjustment thing, it's important to note that it's kind of like a private equity firm when they look at a company they're about to take over. They want to maximize profits and reduce expenditures. So when the IMF looks at a country that it's going to loan to, it wants the country, the dictator basically, to agree to maximize profits and, and reduce expenditures. So cut all kinds of subsidies for food, energy. And maybe that's not the right thing to do anyway. Maybe free market approach is better. The problem is there's hypocrisy because the British and the Americans and the French do all kinds of subsidies for their farmers and energy and everything. Right now there's a subsidy in Britain for energy. And yet all these countries that Britain is loaning to, Britain says, no, you can't do the same thing that we're doing. So this whole do as I say, not as I do thing is, is really what causes a lot of this inequality and so maddening. It's so maddening. I don't know, Maget, what do you have? Yeah, no, on, on that, on the, on the um, you know, um, the injunctions of the IMF in situations like this, I mean, we've, we see it all the time back in the 80s when they did that. And the biggest problem has to do with, you know, they show up and they tell, they tell this government, you have to go for, you know, you got to go for rigor, right? So cut, 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 cut. But the problem is, um, if you actually are going to go and tell us what to do, why not at least tell us to do what's going to make a, a, a good difference? Instead, they tell them cut, cut, cut. And of course, these, these people, these, let's call them what it is in this situation, these F, uh, S-T-U-G-S, you know, because in our countries, they're very sensitive, right? Uh, if, if there's some president here himself being talked about like that, they're going to be like, oh my God, what did she say? But not going to talk about what you were talking about, but what did she call me? So in any case, um, instead, so they let them, they say, just cut, cut, cut. And of course, what do they go for? They go for the weak flanks. They go to cut education. They go to cut um, healthcare, you know, healthcare. Those are the last ones that you Never want. weapons and yeah, never the police never, apparatus. Exactly, exactly. So if you're going to tell them to cut at least- Never corruption. Never corruption. So it's like- Cut the fat, but no, they cut the fat, and so these guys go and cut the fat where they see the fat, education, healthcare, done, which is the worst absolute thing you can do. Uh, ideally, in an ideal world, uh, first of all, all of these decisions would be made by the nation itself as to how do they go about it, and it shouldn't be coming top down, but should we be bottom up, and um, something, you, you know what I mean? So that's all I would add on that, because these restructurings have been having so many problems, and every single time we see the same scenario, and this is a big problem. And just one last thing, and thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, I, I think it's interesting because we all on the stage have 
<clears throat> different kind of philosophies, different political leanings, we'll say. You can look us up and figure it out for yourself. But we do agree on the things we've all said here, and, and I count them as, as the dearest friends of mine. Um, but I wanted to ask Farida, uh, you know, you're trying to pull together a, a large uh, coalition of people for change. They have very different opinions on everything. And I think in the West, there's this idea of Bitcoin as this, like, you know, kind of like libertar crypto libertarian thing. Like, why for you... Um, is it also interesting to progressive people, or, or even to people like further on the left? Like, what, what, what why is, why, why do you, why, why does it resonate with you in that sense? Um, that's a good question, Alex. Um, for me specifically, um, using Bitcoin is about breaking free from all forms of uh, um, 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 controlling systems, whether it is at the national level. Um, or at the international level by uh, um, colonial powers. But in addition to that, it gives more agency to the citizens for once in their life where they, they can have a currency or they can have money that cannot be influenced by, by any individual, cannot be confiscated, which, which is the scariest thing for people like us in our countries where you work your entire life and your money can just be confiscated by a bloody dictator. Having that ownership is extremely important. And then beyond that, uh, uh, um, Bitcoin can help us reduce the vast amount of corruption that we have in our nations. Um, while the French government takes a huge amount of our money away, our government, our uh, dictators are also siphoning the rest of it. Uh, and, and you have some of our dictators buying mansions worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the, in the United States, in Switzerland, and hiding billions of dollars when people cannot assess basic, uh, um, their, their basic needs. So helping us fight corruption is also one of the key aspects of why I think Bitcoin is important for us and giving people agency. For us at HRF, at the Human Rights Foundation, over the last few years, we've started to just ask our people that we give some grants to, uh, do you want that in Bitcoin or, or do you want that in a bank wire? And just like increasingly people want the Bitcoin. Like when you're sending a bank wire to a developing country or someone living in a dictatorship, I mean, forget about it. Not only could it take many, 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 many weeks, it can never get there at all. I met uh, a Palestinian organization that received a massive grant from a German organization. The, the, the grant never got there because the Israelis like held up the grant and then they had to cancel the grant so they never got the money. This is a primitive problem that we don't have to deal with anymore. You can just use Bitcoin and send it and the other person gets it immediately on their phone. They can control it. So this drives me nuts that we still deal with all these problems in both humanitarianism and also in human rights. We have a new tool that allows you to send the money right away. And you don't have to worry necessarily about market risk. You can, the person on the other end can just sell the Bitcoin for whatever they want right away. Like the, it's so, you will find that somebody in every corner of the earth who's delighted to buy your Bitcoin from you for the local currency. Again, even in like Somalia or DR Congo, there is a market 24 seven liquid. So, you know, for a lot of people, it's not going to be about ideology. I, I hope this opened your eyes, but for a lot of people, it's just going to be about administration. It's just going to be about basics. Like, why do I use email and not the postal service? It's not because necessarily I'm like some cypherpunk, you know, obsessive person. It's just because I'm... I don't want to like waste time at the post office. I just I, I, want to yeah. send an email. Yeah. And I think that's what's going to end up happening for NGOs is they're just going to start to realize this, that it's just way easier to do this. At the end of the day, Alex, it's very true. And, um, you know, that's what happens to you activists. They dry your funds. But as a business owner in Senegal, I know that their easiest way to... As a business owner in countries like ours, we know to shut our mouths because the minute you say something that seems to be against the current uh, government or whatever, do you know the first thing they do? They find, a, they find a reason to close your bank account. They dry you. 
completely. So they do that to us as well. But um, the, Alex, to go back to your closing point, it is, at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing, there, there's nothing more uniting in the world than pain. When you have pain, and it's really painful, you don't care who made the medicine, you don't care what color it is, you don't care about anything, you're becoming pragmatic all of a sudden. And that's in a way what we're seeing Bitcoin doing to the rest of us outside of this country where people, again, you don't feel the pain, so whatever. But for those of us outside of there, that's when you're gonna see all cats of all colors and all backgrounds unite. Thank you, and then uh, Frida, when is your conference? When is it happening? Uh, the next conference is happening from December 1st to 3rd, uh, first three days of the Great, year. December 1st to 3rd in Accra. You heard it here. Go to the Afro, afrobitcoin.org to learn more. Thank you so much to my two amazing guests, and thank you for your time today.